Hi there, everyone. Um, as the introduction said, my name is Rajesh Merchandani, currently the Senior Director of Communication and Policy Outreach at the Center for Global Development. Uh, I'm just going to, well, my talk is this. Why policy change? Why not stuff? I'll explain that in a minute. And why me? Now, I'm just going to preface this by telling you that I run communications for CGD, which probably means I'm the dumbest person in this room. So when it comes to questions, uh, go easy on me. Uh, however, I am a good storyteller, and I have a story to tell, and it starts here. Reading words on a screen. Up until seven months ago, this is what I used to do. There I am. I was a BBC News anchor. It's pretty bloody good at it, actually, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> In my 21 years at the BBC, I traveled the world. I saw amazing things. And I, got, I had the privilege of covering some of the most amazing stories. I covered two US presidential elections, several UK general elections. I covered the Haiti earthquake, the rescue of the, the Los Trentitres, the Chilean miners, if you remember that. And a huge amount of things in between, lots of natural disasters. Uh, and when I covered those natural disasters, I saw aid agencies in their proliferation, handing out supplies on the ground, and literally saving lives. They were saving lives. Here I am in the field looking oh so professional in the scene of some natural disaster. Pretty professional, huh? Yeah, not so much. That's us doing live radio. Um, I want to play you a little video. Yeah, that's what it's like, the glamour. Uh, I want to play you a little video now of one of, my, uh, one of the stories I got to cover. I need to fiddle around with the computer, so there's going to be a bit of feedback. Mind your ears. We'll lose the PA for a second, but it will be worth it. Hold on. Talk amongst yourselves. Okay. Oops. One week on since Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines, and the full extent of the devastation is still unclear. From the air, the city of Tacloban still lies in ruins. And this isn't a small town, remember. This is a city of almost a quarter of a million people. Everything looks like detritus, like rubbish. This looks like one enormous rubbish dump. But it is the remains of a city, the remains of people's homes. What we know is that for a week, people have been living with no shelter, barely any food, barely any water. We know now that the aid is starting to get in. A road route has been cleared into Tacloban and the relief effort is very slowly ramping up. But for the last week, this must have been the most unbearable hell for the people who call this city home. Looking out at the bay, the ocean now seems calm beautiful. What a difference it must have been one week ago. So, that was Tacloban. This is what I saw from the helicopter. This is a trawler that's been swept into land, and this is the remains of people's homes. And this is, of course, the poorest part of town. What I saw there was extraordinary. And I'd seen some extraordinary things in the stories that I'd done. And I did see 
a lot of excellent aid work going on and lives being saved on the ground. As a journalist, I did a good job. I got the only BBC interview with the president and I felt I did credit to my profession. But what I saw and what I was doing also made me realize that my job as a journalist was to talk about what other people were doing. Whereas what I really wanted to do was to be doing the doing. Journalism, as I tell people, gave me a ringside seat at history. But what I really wanted to do was help shape the future. And I wanted to help people much less fortunate than myself. So how do you get from that to doing policy? Let me take you back to Takloban. A few days after we arrived, we were filming here. This is a convention center, one of the few concrete buildings left standing, a temporary home to thousands of people. And this is a long line of people waiting in the baking hot sun for food, a food delivery actually that never arrived in the end. Um, in that line, I met a young woman called Abigail who had two small children with her. And she told me that her husband had been killed in the typhoon, that they'd lost their house, and that she and her children were living with her mother in the remains of an office building that was partially standing, living in the open. And they'd been surviving on biscuits for a week. Now, it was that detail. I have no concept of what it means to lose a partner in a, in a typhoon or to lose my home, but I can understand the biscuits. I'm English. I like to dunk biscuits in my tea. And I could just about get some sense of Abigail's plight by understanding what it must feel like to eat biscuits for a week. And that made me realize, you know, this woman is not that much different from me. And suddenly there was a bit of a moment of epiphany, a moment of clarity. In all my travels around the world as a journalist, it is not people's difference that makes them newsworthy. It is their sameness. And that was quite a profound thought. It is their similarity. That's what makes us newsworthy. We're all the same. Further down that line, I met another woman who had been waiting for four hours for food that didn't show up. She told me she hadn't drunk any water since the day before, and she had two small children with her. And I asked her, what are you most worried about? And she said to me, I'm most worried about my children's education. She had a T-shirt on saying, fan of books. It's the kind of T-shirt I imagine everybody in this room would love to wear. And again, that was extraordinarily profound because it told me what do people want for their children. They want opportunity. That's the most important thing to people, even in these horrendous circumstances that we saw in Takloban. And that really resonated with me because I'm a product of opportunity. There I am. Look at me, how adorable is that? <laughs> this is my first birthday in Calcutta. I was born in India. Um, my parents, my sister. Um, we were not poor. We were middle class by Indian standards, but that means by the standards in this room, we were not at all well off. I was born in a hospital in Calcutta. I have never been back to visit that hospital. I'm assuming there was another newborn in the next bed next to me. Why is it that I'm here and I have worked for the BBC for 20 years, I now work in Washington, D.C., and I'm here in these august surroundings of Google talking to all of you, and that kid in that other bed is very, very likely still in India working some shitty job. I don't know what that person, that kid would be doing. But they haven't had the opportunities that I've had. It's because my father had an opportunity to make something of himself. He got a chance to enroll in a college program. The first person in his family to leave India, he jumped on a plane and he went to Glasgow in Scotland. Now, 
Scotland is quite different than India, I'm sure you'll agree. What a strange journey for that young man. But if it, wouldn't, if it hadn't been for that, I would not be standing here today. I'm a product of opportunity, so why should other people, that other kid in that bed, why should that kid not have the same opportunity that I've had? And that motivates me an awful lot. And the thing is, if you look at the statistics, I know you'll like these charts. If you look at the statistics, these are surveys of people's priorities in developing countries. This is on African countries over the years. This is both Africa and Latin America. What do you see people want the most? This is what aid agencies provide, health and education. These are the priorities that the West dictates for developing countries. This is what they want. Jobs slash income, both Latin America and Africa. Jobs slash income, they want opportunity. So how do you give people opportunity? You change policy. You change the policies of rich countries and rich institutions to reduce global poverty and inequality. That's the motto of the Center for Global Development. That's our mission of CGD. We focus on changing policy in order to make aid better. And we also focus on policies in different areas, trade, migration, investment, security, climate. These are all policies that affect development. We call them beyond aid policies. And that way, you impact millions of lives at the stroke of Mr. Obama's pen here. So reasons to do policy number one. Scale. You can act at massive scale by changing policy, more so than you can do by doing stuff. The stuff that I saw in so many different locations around the world. An example for you. Some years ago, CGD worked to reduce uh, the debt burden of Nigeria, uh, and it was successfully cut by $30 billion. Nigeria is now one of the economic powerhouses of Africa. I'm not saying there's a direct line. Did we have some impact? We like to think so. The G8 in Glen Eagles 10 years ago, that was about poverty debt, redu debt reduction. It canceled $40 billion in debt for 18 of the world's most indebted countries. That's policy. NGOs that normally do stuff also working on policy to change the policies of the rich. As a result of that, and for, you know, because of natural growth, economic growth in poor countries has been very pronounced in the last 10 to 15 years. There's been progress on the MDGs, yes, in part due to aid, and we very much believe in aid. We believe that countries should live up to and exceed their commitments in aid. It's extraordinarily important, increasingly so for the most poor and vulnerable states and communities. But progress on the MDGs has also very much been due to economic growth in poor countries. I want to play you another video now, so mind your ears. I'm just going to change over the little connection here. How do we pay for development? You might be surprised. In 2011, rich countries gave developing nations $161 billion in aid. That same year, migrant workers sent $341 billion back home to developing countries. Other sources of international private finance totaled $928 billion. Now here's where it gets interesting. The private sector in developing countries contributed $3.7 trillion in investment to their economies. But wait. Developing countries' own government revenues totaled $5.5 trillion. The poorest people still need our aid, but we need to think beyond aid. Remember, development does not equal aid. If we help poor countries grow stable, prosperous economies, we help them and we help ourselves.
So aid is a small and declining share of development finance, by far the biggest source of funds for development are developing country government revenues themselves. Therefore, the best thing that we can do to help poor countries is to help them build stable, prosperous, well-governed economies. And that means policy. Let me take you now to another location. This is the Dadaab refugee camp in northern Kenya, where I went to do a story about polio vaccination. It makes me think about vaccinations. <clears throat> Some years ago, CGD worked on something called advanced market commitments, which is a mechanism that allows, that creates a market, a profitable market, a financial incentive for drugs companies to manufacture the kinds of drugs that will save millions of lives in the developing world that were not being created before because there was no market. We worked on that. And that has had a massive impact. The Gates Foundation has invested in that. Donor countries have invested in that. Gavi uses that. And hundreds of millions of vaccinations have happened. Millions of children's lives have been saved. So if we change rich country policies to move away from, say, giving aid to NGOs to vaccinate people, and we move to, say, paying poor countries to vaccinate people by creating a system whereby they can contribute to that because we've created that financial incentive, then our aid goes further. And developing countries are then brought into the decision-making process about vaccination. They have ownership of those programs, and people get vaccinated. So that's one argument for using policy to get the state to provide the state in developing countries. We change the policies of rich countries to make developing countries better governed and better functioning. For another example, instead of building schools, using our aid money to build schools, we say through something called cash on delivery aid, that you should pay for educational outcomes. So that means paying countries to test their pupils. Because as we've heard through many other sessions in this conference, however many schools you build, however many books you provide, children are still leaving school without being able to do basic reading and writing. Again, that's working on policy. Reasons to do policy number two, leverage. Once you use policy change in one area, say cash on delivery as a policy tool, use it in the area of education, you can use it in another area as well. And you can then increase better governance across that society. You're helping them build stable, prosperous, well-governed societies. That has a far greater effect than any stuff we could do. If that isn't effective altruism, then I ask you what is. Let me take you now back to Dadaab, this dusty, fly-infested, hellhole in northern Kenya that's home to 400,000 Somalis. This is some of the conditions that they live in as well. Pretty awful, as you can imagine. Now, let me ask you a question. How long do you think the average refugee stays a refugee before they return to their own country or before they're resettled somewhere else? Any ideas? You know the answer, don't you? No, okay. Right. Okay, what's your guess? I'm guessing It's 17 years. 17 years. That young girl was probably born in Dadaab. She'll probably have children in Dadaab. It's an absolute disgrace. There is a humanitarian crisis going on in the world. So what we're doing is we're looking at the way that we give humanitarian aid. You're getting a bit of a scoop here. We haven't released this work yet. It's coming out in a few weeks' time. It would aid be better, more efficient, more effective, more dignified if we just gave cash instead. It's quite a controversial idea because it, it would tend to upset the current architecture of response, but it's working on policy. It's not going to cost rich countries any more. It's simply going to change the way they do aid to make it more efficient 
and that's policy. This child probably also, well, because she's in a refugee camp, she's been registered by the UN, but people coming over, living amongst local populations, they, might, they probably legally don't exist. There are 750 million children in the world that legally do not exist because they don't have birth certificates, they haven't been registered. Yeah. 10% of the world's population? A huge amount. Yeah, massive. Because they, don't, they haven't been registered at birth. So we're working on a program to increase biometric identification of people, children at birth, which allows them to take part in their economies more. You can't benefit from any services your country might provide if, you're, if you don't legally exist. As a result of some of our work, the World Bank has started a program of lending called ID for Development. Uh, it's also been involved in that work. I should just give them credit as well. Again, that is policy. Reasons to do policy number three, legacy. If you do stuff, that's great. I think if you want to do it, go for it. But what happens when you're gone? That stuff stops being delivered. If you change policy, that is a lasting effect after you've gone. You know, poor countries have so many urgent demands that their governments can't often, can't often think long term. So as an effective altruist, you want to help or nudge them into thinking long term. You could fund evaluation. That shows them what they're doing badly, what they're doing well, and how they could improve. That's a great thing for effective altruists to, to fund. We work to have the greatest effect for the greatest number of people over the greatest time. That, to us, is effective altruism. Now, of course, you can do both. Gates does both. Oxfam does both. Save the Children does both. Uh, and sometimes the work we do makes doing stuff better. And we don't mind that at all. That's great. Ultimately, you should invest your time, your energy, your resources, your money into doing whatever you feel you want to do. I think Will McCaskill would probably disagree with me on that, but I'm going to say it anyway. It'll make you feel good. Great. If you want to do it that way, that's up to you. We think policy is the best way to go. As I said, I'm the Director of Communications. We, I mean CGD. We're just a bunch of world-class researchers, mainly with PhDs in economics and brains the size of planets. So <laughs> what do we know? Just as our hosts would say, do no harm. This is me. This is our website. This is my Twitter feed. I'd love you to follow me. Thank you very much.